Those of us of a certain age will never forget the events of September 11th, 2001. But as my morning show guest Mitch Zukoff points out in his remarkable book, Fall and Rise, the story of 9-11, there is already an entire generation that has no direct memory of 9-11. It is for them, and not only for them, that this really important book has been constructive. It's a massive book and a meticulously researched book that seeks to tell the story of 9-11 in nonfiction narrative form. It is a remarkable accomplishment indeed. And the man responsible for it, Mitchell Zukoff, uh, is the uh, Summoner M. Redstone Professor of Narrative Studies at Boston University. And he covered the events of 9-11 for the Boston Globe and is responsible for writing the lead news story uh, on the day of that terrible attack. He has written a number of different books, including the bestseller 13 Hours, The Inside Account of What Really Happened in uh, Benghazi. And uh, this latest book published by HarperCollins is again called Fall and Rise, The Story of 9-11. Mitchell Zukoff, we welcome you to the morning show. Greg, thank you for having me on. I am profoundly honored to be speaking with you, and I congratulate you on a really remarkable book. Uh, Ahead of us talking specifically about the book, this is closely related, of course, I wonder if you could briefly give us some sense of what it was like to be working for the Boston Globe on 9-11 and responsible for covering uh, these chaotic, unexpected events in the moment. I cannot imagine what that responsibility was like for you uh, and your counterparts at, at other papers directly affected by those events. Sure. Uh, the, the, interestingly enough, I was not supposed to be at work that day. I, I had been on the Globe Spotlight team and I'd worked as a national reporter and I was home on book leave trying to write my first book. And uh, the first plane, Flight 11, went in, and the second plane, I, and like most people, I wasn't yet thinking terrorism. I was thinking, you know, how can a pilot mess up that badly on such a beautiful day? And the second plane went in, Flight 175, and I rushed toward the phone, and before I got there, it was already ringing. Uh, it was my, my editor, Mark Morrow, saying, your book leave is over. And so I raced in to the Globe and, uh, you know, sat down in what we used to call the control chair. It was understood that I was going to write the lead and just started doing what we do, starting to do the blocking and tackling of of what happened, who did this, when did it happen, where did it happen? And the ultimate question, the question that it really has taken me, uh, and I think all of us, you know, uh, almost two decades to to answer is the, the why question. And so... That day was just a blur uh, of, of, you know, dealing, frankly, with our own feelings as, as things kept happening. You know, the first two planes went in, and then, of course, the Pentagon gets hit. And then a flight goes down in Shanksville. And, and while it's happening, you don't know that it's four planes. You don't know if it's 40. You don't know, are there, you know, ancillary uh, terrorism acts uh, planned? Uh, are, you know, are they going to hit the trains? Are, and so... You're sort of managing your own feelings and your concerns, as anyone would have, for your own family, for the people you love, uh, for your own community, while also understanding you have a job to do. You have to tell the story uh, as completely, as accurately. And fortunately, uh, I had the great good fortune of being uh, involved with uh, several dozen of the best journalists on the planet, 
who you know who did remarkable work that day. I, I, I like to tell the story of, of Tina Cassidy, who was if she had been a, uh, a political reporter, but at the time she was actually covering the fashion industry, and she was in New York. And, and Tina was in a pencil skirt and high heels, and she ran from Midtown toward the events at Ground Zero uh, to feed me information, and, and on and on. So that was that was the most remarkable, and I use that word advisedly, uh, extraordinary, difficult in in every way day of my my professional career. In some ways just about as difficult, albeit difficult in a very different way, was the task that you confronted in writing this book, a very comprehensive account of that day, all these years later. I am curious about two things. First of all, why a book of this nature? What do you see as its most important purpose? And and also, why now? Or, or maybe a, another way to ask that is... Uh, what is what is in a sense right about this book being written now, this many years after the fact? Sure, you, you know I think you eloquently said it. Some of this in the open that uh, we have an entire generation who are old enough to fight in a war that began as a result of these events, and yet have no independent memories of their own. And for folks like us who lived through it, memories start to fade, and. In their interim as well, we have had 18 years uh, for information to come out, some fast, some slow, and then ultimately the people, the people whose stories I tell here, some of whom were never ready to tell these stories until now. And so that combination, the ability to get Elaine Duke talking about what happened to her on the 88th floor, the ability to get the family members of Jack Punches to describe um, what happened in the Pentagon, and on and on. And so we, I feel like we're at this inflection point right now where uh, there are the people who are still around to tell it are available to me, and I can capture their stories, and the people who need to hear it, both those of us whose memories perhaps have started to fade, and people who have none of their own need to hear this story. So uh, I, I, it's funny, if I had tried to write this story five years after, I couldn't have done it like this. And I think if I had waited five more years, I couldn't have told the story. Um, I'm sad to say that some of the people I've interviewed over the past five years have even, they've passed. Next week, uh, a guy named Jerry Henson, whose story I tell in the Pentagon, he died a year ago, and he's going to be buried next week because it takes some time at Arlington National Cemetery. And so... Had I not gotten Jerry's story of what happened to him that day inside the Pentagon, and it's an extraordinary story involving amazing heroism, then that story would have been gone. And so I, I, I feel fortunate. I feel the responsibility of having told this story, having finished the work that I began on 9-11, um, and this was the exact right time to tell it. Hmm. I want to ask you about an intriguing line from the book's introduction. Um... And you, just ahead of this paragraph, uh, uh, quote uh, someone who was a sailor on the doomed battleship USS California. If you didn't go through it, there are no words that can adequately describe it. If you were there, then no words are necessary. You go on to write, even if words might fail, they're the best hope to delay the descent of 9-11 into the well of history. 
that is the purpose of this book. What do you mean by the well of history? Once something passes from news to history, you know, we, we come to the phrase, history is what happened to other people. And I'm trying to delay that descent into history because in many ways we are all still experiencing 9-11. We have to keep it present in our lives. Uh, not that Pearl Harbor, not that Antietam, not that you know, uh, battles of, of, of bygone ages are not still central and important to our history. But 9-11 is still with us every single day, every time you pass through an airport and every time you you know, you take off your shoes. But even more so, the the circumstances around the post-9-11 world, the lessons of 9-11 are still with us, and we have to keep learning them on a daily basis. Uh, Terrorism is still present in our lives. We haven't just, you know, fought and, and, and responded to it and then moved on. And so for people to connect to it by knowing the people who are involved, by knowing the names, by knowing the stories, by remembering that dramatic and and, uh, excruciating, but ultimately, I hope, uplifting experience of knowing what people did at the worst moments of their lives will make them feel you can know things about 9/11. You can know the numbers. You can, you know, you can pass the test by by telling, uh, by writing, you know, in in the, in the book that there are four planes and 19 hijackers and twin towers and even the numbers nine and eleven. But the numbers don't tell the story, and so the human stories behind this will connect you to the feelings of what it was like. And I think that was that was my goal in in as you you. I think uh, I'm glad you pulled out that line. That was an important line to me. As as you think about the purpose of this book to delay the, its descent into history. We're speaking with Mitchell Zukoff, author of a brand new book called Fall and Rise, the story of 9-11. The book is laid out in, in three sections, and the first section is called Fall from the Sky and recounts the hijackings themselves, at least to whatever extent we can know exactly what transpired on those planes. Uh, I think one of the things that is so intriguing about those particular stories is that it is something, in a sense, so well known to us, and yet, to some extent, so much of those particular stories and their specifics are forever beyond our grasp, uh, because nobody survived from any of those four planes that were hijacked on yeah. 9-11. Can you just say a word about what is involved for someone like you in trying to tell the story of those four hijackings as thoroughly as you do, given the limitations that I just uh, outlined? Sure. It's, it's a great question, Greg. The, the, the good fortune that I had, in because because that's such an essential part of the story, because that's where the, the, the battle begins in a way, is that a number of brave souls were able to get calls off the planes. So I'm thinking of Betty Ong, and so we have the transcript of Betty Ong, a flight attendant on Flight 11, the first hijacked plane, and she calls in to American Airlines, to, to her bosses at, at the control center in, in, in Texas. And a good part of that is tape recorded. And so we have that. 
and we have the transcript of the immediate aftermath of, of what the people she was speaking to um, remember from that call. And we also have the, uh, the, the, the actual tapes of the, uh, the flight controllers. And so that brings it back to life. And fortunately, um, as terrible as it is, I have the transcript of inside the cockpit of Flight 93. The voice cockpit recorder was recovered in that field in Shanksville. And so to have that you know, transcript, we know what the terrorists were saying to each other when they were deciding, um, has the uprising reached the point where we're not going to be able to reach the capital? Uh, do we put it in now? And so that... that creates almost a you-are-there experience for readers uh, that they couldn't have by just knowing the facts, okay, four planes. Mm. And so each one of these calls, or I I think about Peter Hansen and and, and his family, and Peter gets two calls off to his father in in Connecticut, and I spent a a lot of time with Lee Hansen talking about those calls. Uh, and, And Lee had a vivid memory, of course. These are the two last conversations with his son. And so having that and then understanding my goal is to, to make you know not just what Peter said, but who was Peter Hansen? Hmm. Who was this guy who's there on a flight to California with his, his wife and his two-year-old daughter? And he realizes what's happening, and he wants to get a, a you know, a, sort of a, you know, uh, I guess a, a lifeline, if you will, to his father and to tell his father to alert the authorities, and then to call back a second time and to to say his goodbyes. Hmm. And so those, I gather all of that, and I gather all of the known facts and the timeline as a scaffolding on which to lay the stories of of sort of the, the deep human connections that were happening, even as these people knew some of them that uh, the, the end was near. Mm. So that's that's how I tell the, those stories, even though, tragically, Betty Young is gone and, and, and Peter is gone and, uh, you know, all the people. And, you know, I, uh, some of the people, frankly, from Flight 93, extraordinarily, they got calls off that were then recorded on voice uh, machines, you know, on, on voice recordings. And so their last words are recorded and kept for us. Um, a fellow from Flight 175, Brian Sweeney, uh, was able to give the, just the most extraordinary message to his wife um, waiting for him and, and telling her to be strong, telling her to be happy. And so I've heard that voice recording. And so all of that combines together to, to sort of create a mosaic where each little piece is um, something that brings us together with the people, even though they're gone. Hmm. We should say also that Part one of this book is not just about the tragic drama as it unfolds aboard these four airplanes, but also the incredible drama on the ground uh, Mm. of those who are grappling with these inexplicable events. And one of the sort of abiding themes in terms of what is occurring on the ground during these hijackings is the notion of old rules still applied, certain narrow expectations. It seems like time and time again, we are talking about people who were well-trained for what was once, <laughs> but not necessarily prepared for these unprecedented uh, events of 
Uh, it's such a great point. That's exactly what happened. That, I mean, one example uh, that I've always thought about is that that a fighter pilot who's sent up into the air um, to 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 go after whatever or to protect the capital, he still thinks that a cruise missile from a Russian submarine is what caused some of this damage when he's flying. There. They're, they're stuck in old ways of thinking. They're stuck in, in the Cold War at that moment, that there's going to be Russian bombers coming over the North Pole. That was our attack profile fear. And so I tell that story through Major Kevin Nisipany, who is a remarkable guy, and he's in charge of what's called NEADS, the Northeast Air Defense uh, System. And uh, Kevin is is grappling with this in real time. Unfortunately, we have the tapes of him, so all of his, his voice recordings are available now. And so I know exactly what he was saying, and then fortunately he was willing to talk with me, so I also know what he was thinking as uh, basically 50 years or 60 years since the World War II of planning and thinking and preparation gets swept away in a moment as we grapple with something else entirely. Suddenly, we're not dealing with military to military. We're dealing with, uh, you know, a, a, a plot that cost less than a million dollars for hijacked planes simultaneously with suicide pilots. Uh, that wasn't on the radar. Now, Kevin had thought about some of these things, but he was actually even prevented from using one of those kind of scenarios uh, during a, a war games exercise that he was running. He had thought about using um, a planned hijacking into the, the U.N. tower in New York City. Uh, but he was told by a military planner, that's too far-fetched. So, you know, that is the, this sort of, you know, uh, dramatic undergirth of this, of this entire story. And at the same time, tragically, making it worse is that we have a number of communications failures. We have airlines and the FAA not telling the, F the military what's going on. They knew things, you know, so long before the military and, and, and Kevin and the fighter pilots uh, could have the information that they could have used, perhaps. Hmm. And so that chaos, that chaos the, the reason I tell it in such detail is, first of all, so people understand what was going on with all of that, but also, frankly, as a lesson, that if we continue to fight the last war, uh, then we're doomed to repeat it, the, the terrible events of 9-11. If, if, if somebody comes after the United States again in a terrorist attack, it's not going to look like 9-11. That's the point. It's going to look like something else where they think they can exploit vulnerabilities. And so if we are planning for a multiple four-pronged attack by suicidal pilots, then, goodness, we are thinking all wrong. You know, we have to be like the proverbial goalie who not just has to, you know, get all hundred shots, but has to also think about the shot he hasn't planned for, because that's the one that might be the decisive one. Mm -hmm. So I tell the story in that detail for that very reason. We're speaking with Mitchell Zukoff about his book, Fall and Rise, the Story of 9-11. Part two of the book is Fall to the Ground. And of course, that is the story of what occurs uh, in the Twin Towers and in the Pentagon uh, in the wake of those uh, crashes by those hijacked uh, airplanes. It is remarkable to read story after story of incredible heroism in the midst of mm. such terror. I wonder, as you put this book together, 
What was the temptation to focus on those kind of stories that sort of make us proud of the human race in a mm-hmm. sense uh, uh, versus other stories that I'm sure were also a part of that day that uh, are of of less than noble characteristics of human beings. Uh, uh, how much did you weigh that kind of balance uh, in terms of how to tell that story? Yeah, I certainly did weigh it, Greg. And 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 I and as a journalist, I want to be careful not to just you know aggrandize the story and not to just lionize all the people involved. But again and again, I kept finding stories that, to various extents, repeated that very theme: people doing for others, people being larger than themselves, people finding a way through their pain or through their misery or through their fear to do something extraordinary. And, so, and, and many, many times they didn't think it was extraordinary. It was just, it just what came naturally. And so when I tell part two, when I tell the events in the towers in Shankstone and the Pentagon, um, I do lean towards some of the more remarkable events. But I also do tell stories of just sort of an average guy caught in an elevator. You know, the story of Chris Young is remarkable to me because, you know, he's, he's every man. He's me. He's you. He's somebody who just is there dropping off some papers, gets in an elevator, and suddenly gets trapped and has no idea what's going on and spends the next 90 minutes. He's the last one to know in some ways of what's happening, and he's in the midst of it. And so I tell that story as well, in addition to stories that are just, frankly, you know, tragic, but remarkable in their own way. Um, The story of Elaine Gentle, who, you know, she told her staff to get out of the South Tower, and then she goes up, uh, you know, higher in the building to evacuate a group of IT workers who were there that day. And she gets trapped, and she can't reach the elevators that her own father's company had installed in the, in the South Tower uh, that may have been able to help her get out. Uh, that's, that's, that's a hard story. That's excruciating. And uh, it's not directly heroic, but I, I find uh, Elaine's story important and in its own way uh, really remarkable. One of my favorite moments from the third part of the book, which is called Rise from the Ashes, is uh, about her and about her husband uh, in the wake of her tragic death, which may have been uh, actually from jumping from the towers. She may have been one of those uh, driven to that awful choice. But I wonder if you would uh, tell our listeners, if you happen to recall, the beautiful scene that you describe uh, when... Uh, her her husband Jack gets a call from their pastor asking him to come to their church to see something. Well, I have to tell you, it's easy for me to choke up, Greg. Right, right here, just thinking about some of these stories, and and certainly what happened with Jack. Um, Jack had been on the phone with Elaine uh, near the end, and uh, they had expressed their love for each other, and she had expressed her love for their children, and. Uh, they were very involved uh, with their church, and uh, had taught Sunday school, and, and the pastor, as you described, did say, you need to, to come down here. And when he did, he found this, um, this pathway of flowers uh, all around from the street, from the sidewalk, up into the sanctuary, um, 
that people had, 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 had made for Elaine's memory, and they wanted him to see it, to see how uh, a thing of beauty could be part of this horrific tragedy. And when Jack <clears throat> told me that story, you know, he, he choked up, I choked up, and we're talking, I probably talked to Jack 16 years after these events. And those are the moments... Uh, to me, that are I tell some of those stories, and I heard a lot of those stories, and I particularly told that one because it reminded me of how we all were in the immediate aftermath, the unity, the people coming together to support one another, to recognize that this was an attack on all Americans. This was uh, certainly had the greatest effect on on some families, but we all felt touched by it. We all felt we needed to do something. We all felt... Uh, a desire to say, how can I help? How can I make it a little bit better? And and I, part of going back to what we were talking about before, part of the descent into history is when we forget that feeling. Mm. And I hope by reading about what happened with Jack and some of the other people, uh, people can, can be reminded of that. Right. I want to say that one of the things I especially appreciate about your book is that although you tell us so many incredible stories. You also tell those many stories so very thoroughly. I'm thinking, for instance, of a phone call between dispatcher Vanessa Barnes and uh, a woman who is caught in one of the towers, and yes. you you share their exchange, because it is recorded verbatim, uh, nearly from the start of the phone call to the very, very end of it. And yes. And time and time again, we are not treated to the headlines or to the quick summary, but to a thorough telling of those events. Thank you. Vanessa Barnes was just so remarkable that day. You know, she woken up that day to be a a police dispatcher, you know, taking the the routine calls. And and she finds herself on the phone with Melissa Doy, who is trapped in the South Tower, high in the South Tower, and smoke is encroaching upon her and the people she is huddling with in an office, and they, they, they can't find a way out. And the call evolves over the course of, of these minutes from a very business-like, you know, what's your emergency? We've all heard that from a dispatcher to this incredibly human exchange of, um, you know, she stops calling her Miss Melissa even at one point, Vanessa does, and starts, you know, calling her baby and mothering her at this moment through this horrible set of circumstances. And ultimately, near the end of the call, Melissa asks Vanessa Barnes if she would call her mother afterward um, to, to tell her she loved her. And so this powerful exchange that is, as you describe, is recorded because it's a 911 call, and it was made part of the, the, the horror of the, the, the Musawi trial in 2006, but it can end up being this sort of redemptive, uplifting, powerful moment between two strangers that uh, we all are privy to now because of that. And so I, I'm so glad you brought that up. That, that one means the world to me. It's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible exchange, and I'm so glad that it is here. Do you have time for one quick question? Sure. Of uh, this actually speaks beyond the events of 9-11 to your work as a journalist. At one point you write, Facts are stubborn and powerful. Could you just say a word about 
how that is true, uh, particularly for you as a journalist and particularly uh, as it relates to telling the important story of 9-11 in your book. I'm so glad you asked. I, that is, I, I should almost have that tattooed on my ribs, that staying, because that's, the, the, that's what I live by, and that's what I think all good journalists live by. We tell the truth. We start with a question and then try to get the facts to get to the answer. Stories have come up around 9-11, conspiracy theories. People want to, you know, imagine what they do. They start with a conclusion and then backfill and, and shape the information. I can't call them facts to fit their predetermined notions. And so it's especially important to tell this story through the people who lived it, to, to tell the story as a true story, because that's what will endure. Uh, it, it, we, we can't get beyond that. And so uh, the facts are powerful, and the story of 9-11 is too important to tell otherwise. The book, again, is Fall and Rise, the story of 9-11, published by HarperCollins. Mitchell Zukoff, thank you for creating this important book, and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. What a privilege for it, me. It was a true pleasure, Greg. Thank you so much for this interview.